0: Welcome to Love Bites. Love Bites. Love, love Bites. Love Bites. By Dr. Tara. Your destination for sexual wellness and mindful relationship advice. Hope you're having an orgasmic day. Massages can be sexually arousing. Upgrade your foreplay with an amazing massage candle by Mod. It's body safe and skin softening. Once melted and extinguished, it can be poured on the skin and let the fun begin. Check out the link in this episode's description and have an orgasmic time. Hello, my loves. You're in for a treat. My guest today is one of the most celebrated sex researchers of our time, Dr. Lori Brado is a professor at the University of British Columbia, a registered psychologist in Canada, an executive director of the Women's Health Research Institute of BC, and the director of the UBC Sexual Health Laboratory, where she and her team research mindfulness-based interventions for women with sexual dysfunction and those who experience chronic genital pain. Apart from hundreds of research that she's done, she's also the author of a popular book titled Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire. Hello, Dr. Brado.
1: Hi, Tara. Thank you so much for having me here today.
0: Thank you so much for making the time for our conversation on Love Bites. Uh, I'm sure my audience is very appreciative right now uh, for you to be sharing your knowledge today. So we'll mainly talk about your, I mean, amazing expertise in sexual arousal in women. Uh, How did this come to be? Yes,
1: uh, it's a a great question. It's (laughs) one
0: that still catches
1: me off guard today because I certainly never intended to be uh, a researcher who devotes their time to studying and understanding sexual response, um, mostly because I grew up in a very conservative Catholic Italian household where the only discussions about sex were about not doing it and the consequences of doing it. So I really fell upon sex research by accident. Um, As a a young undergrad, I knew I was interested in science. I love science. And uh, I was looking for a volunteer opportunity and because I was so junior had no experience at all the only lab that would accept me as a volunteer was a neuroscientist who was studying animal models of sexual dysfunction I had no idea wow I had a conversation I, no- I started knocking on doors had a conversation with him he accepted me and he said all right now that I've accepted you do you want to know about the research that we do and so he <laughs> took me up unlocked the door Uh, Because, of course, the animal care facilities were behind locked doors. And I then spent the next six years uh, studying the impact of chronic stress, antidepressants, social environments, um, isolation on sexual activity of rats.
0: And I learned a lot
1: about um, kind of the underlying neural mechanisms, neural transmitters, um, and also the role of social factors and, and chronic stress on sexual activity. Um, and I loved it. It, it uh, you know, it fulfilled my love of science, but also introduced me to this really interesting field that I never considered of, <laughs> you know, of, stud- of uh, uh, you know, watching rats have sex and trying to make <laughs> sense of it. Um, but then um, Viagra was approved. And the year Viagra was approved was also the year that I uh, had finished my master's degree, was moving on to a PhD, and was asking myself the question of what's next? Do I want to continue this work in animals, which was very interesting and fulfilling. But the reason that it, it was so pivotal for Viagra being approved is because we had this effective, safe, easy to use, efficient, treatment for male erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And yet concerns, sexual concerns in women were twice as prevalent Mm -hmm. and there was nothing comparable to Viagra. So it was a pretty easy decision for me to make the switch. And then I began to study The physiological patterns of sexual arousal in women, and we did that using a vaginal probe. So you invite Mm. women into a private lab; Mm. they watch erotica, and essentially you measure what does the body do while they're watching erotica, and how are they feeling in their brains at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that I wish I
0: could have been a participant. (laughs) Well,
1: you still can be. There are labs (laughs) like it all over North America, in fact, all over the world. So that was really how it started. Again, a bit of serendipity, but also combined with Um, an underlying uh, streak for equity and, and equity around ensuring that, you know, women are included in, Mm -hmm. in science, but also that we have treatments that are safe and effective that really address women's concerns.
0: Yeah. I'm a huge advocate for, uh, sexual pleasure. So, uh, the first concern that I have just based on all my friends and a lot of my students telling me is that they have you know, never had an orgasm or that they don't like having sex. They don't enjoy it. They do it for the connection and for relational maintenance, but they don't love it. Uh, and a lot of times they, the way they describe it, it sounds like it was kind of arousal issue. So can you talk uh, more about, so what is sexual arousal? What's, what's happening? Yeah. So, um, you know, we still don't know for
1: sure because um, <laughs> researchers, experts, kind of have have varying degrees of uh, understanding, and and it's also limited by our ability to measure it. Yeah. But that said, we largely think of sexual arousal as the body's capacity, ability for sexual response, um, and also the mind's excitement in the moment. And so right. it's this sort of state of awakening, responsivity. And we recognize that arousal happens in response to some kind of a trigger. It doesn't just, it's not just automatic. There's some kind of a trigger that elicits arousal, whether it's something visual, seeing something that turns you on, thinking about something that turns you on, smelling something that turns you on, having a touch that turns you on. So when we talk about arousal, we also have to talk about triggers. And we recognize that sometimes when arousal is um, low or absent or different from how it used to be in the past, Mm -hmm. it's not about arousal per se, but it might be related to the ineffectiveness of the triggers that uh, Mm -hmm. are no longer working like they used to.
0: So like if something that, you know, for example, if your partner used to kind of rub your thighs, rub your neck, give you a little massage and you respond to it and you're like, ooh, let's have sex. Uh, if that no longer works, is that what you're saying? Yeah.
1: So, and and that's a great example because sometimes a particular touch that was very effective at eliciting right. a response at one phase of a person's life might no longer work in the future. So, another common example is clitoral stimulation. A lot mm-hmm. of a lot of people with clitorises will say, you know, it, it used to feel good when my partner touched me there right away. Now it hurts or it's irritating. Un- unless I'm aroused already. Um, so yeah, we have to pay it, uh, we have to re- we have to know what those triggers are. A person needs to know what those triggers are for them and also understand that those triggers might change over time and how effective
0: they are. But it's hard for your partner to be knowing your triggers mm-hmm. unless you tell them, right? So percent communication. <laughs> <laughs> and that's
1: why you're the expert in sexual <laughs> communication and that is why it is it, it's the most important thing. It's, it is the most important thing next to mindfulness, paying attention, but also communication because you're absolutely right. There's no way for a partner to know based on looking at
0: your body, right? What something feels like, like too many variables, too many things going on. Mm. And they would have to try a hundred things for you to be like, Mm. okay, those five things felt good. Right. So they would have to be self-exploring, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you say things like pleasure mapping your body, like touching different areas to see what feels good and also kind of journaling and thinking about what feels good sexually uh, Mm -hmm. would be helpful?
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's often an exercise that we give for people who seek out treatment from, say, someone like me, like a sex therapist is number one, giving people permission to and emphasizing the importance of really knowing your own body and um, and touching in a way that you're not you're not goal oriented. You're not trying to produce an orgasm. You're not trying to produce arousal, but you're touching with a certain degree of openness to receive whatever is there and, and register whatever is there. So it's less it's less so about thinking about it and it's more so about tuning in and paying attention and experiencing it in the moment. Um, And that's critical in order for a person themselves to know what feels good um, and what feels pleasurable so that they can communicate that to a partner.
0: Right, right. Uh, So what feels good or like triggers that give us arousal? uh, All of this may sound confusing to uh, some people listening. Um, Can you kind of once and for all, explain the differences between sexual arousal and sexual desire.
1: <laughs> once and for all, <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a once and for here. all <laughs> because the, the definitions are are always a cha- changing. Again, as we understand more, but here here is one thing that we know: um, we feel happy when happy things happen to us, right? So so we all agree, and emotion researchers agree that happiness is a responsive emotion. Sexual desire is exactly the same. So we desire sex when it feels good, when there's arousal, when there's a certain degree of response, when there's something that elicits it. And so when we think about arousal as being kind of the body's response in response to triggers, desire then is the motivation that arises out of arousal. Right. So it's um, it, it's a it's a kind of model where first one feels aroused and then you have desire for sex com- as compared to, um, I think, older, older ideas and definitions of desire, which suggested, you know, first you're horny and in the mood and then you kind of right. seek out a partner and then you go through all this work to get aroused. There's far more scientific evidence suggesting that arousal comes first and then desire emerges from it.
0: That is very interesting so uh, the triggers have to come first
1: yeah trigger and triggers are essential because sexual response is not automatic right now there, there there might there might feel like there's an automatic um aspect to sexual response right you're watching tv and all of a sudden there's an erotic scene and you start to get excited maybe lubricate maybe have an erection or what have you but there's still a trigger there that's eliciting yes, it that's there's still the, the visual Fantasy and and trigger that is there. So um, there is th- those triggers are absolutely essential for the response to unfold.
0: Wow, I'm surprised that it's not the main narrative to everyone. Right, right? That, like, we have yeah. to put the triggers everywhere and yeah. being like a sexual communication. Uh, professor to, in my mind, a lot of communication things are triggers, mm-hmm. right? Like a little bit of maybe dirty talk, a little bit of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, adoration, a little bit of like maybe sexting, like all these communication things can be triggers, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: for sure. And, uh, but, but what's interesting is one of the things that gets in the way is um, people's own inhibitions around that. So there's, there's still these kind of this legacy of stigma and shame around dirty talk or Mm -hmm. fantasies or telling a partner what you like, and they all relate to communication. And so if we frame all of those as a form of communication, and then we emphasize um, what the science tells us, which is sexual communication is one of the best predictors of long-term sexual satisfaction, and we know that because the very, very large uh, studies done out of the UK have shown us that, that sexual communication is a major predictor of long-term sexual satisfaction. Then maybe people start to have a bit more permission around things like sex talk and Mm -hmm. fantasy and telling a partner about their pleasures and that sort of thing. But so we very much want to normalize these as tools and parts of a healthy sexual relationship.
0: Yeah. Wow. I wish, uh, you know, like in traffic uh, in the US, (laughs) like in traffic, they would have signs that say like, uh, don't drink and drive. I wish they would just put sexual communication is the strongest predictor of long-term sexual satisfaction.
1: I agree. I agree. I, I would pay for that billboard for sure. <laughs> I know. Should we put a GoFundMe together? <laughs> I think we should. I think we should. And, and uh, raise, raise money among people who have benefited from oh sexual gosh. communication. I think totally. we're on to something. <laughs>
0: Me included. Yeah. I used to like never speak about sex in my relationship. And of course, I had a streak of... You know, sexual dissatisfaction in my uh, monogamous relationships, like on and on and on a new boyfriend, a new boyfriend. And it was still like it was OK. It wasn't amazing, Be- and m- mainly because I wasn't communicating the things that I want, the things that I desire. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm definitely a huge advocate of communicating Uh, your desires. So you were talking about the differences and I think that was an amazing explanation. So my next question would be why, why do lots of women have, or they say they have low sexual desires and Mm -hmm. is it related to arousal? Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, good. Yeah, really good question. And we know that low desire is the most common sexual concern. The big surveys suggest that maybe one in three women over the last year will say that they've had a period of at least three months or more where um, their desire has been lower than what it has been in the past.
0: And it's like a common narrative. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I have quite a following on TikTok and a lot of comments, a lot, like thousands of comments are saying, well, she never wants to have it. Mm -hmm. She never wants to have sex. So what's going on? Yeah. So if if we adopt this definition
1: of desire, which is that, you know, you kind of feel horny out of the blue, you feel in the mood for sex out of the blue, then yeah, that number is going to be very high. In fact, 30% is probably an underestimate simply because we don't go through our day, you know, spontaneously (laughs) out of the blue, like an arrow hits us and we're in the mood for sex. That's just not the way that desire unfolds. So if, again, if we adopt that narrow definition, yeah, the numbers are going to be high and people are going to say, oh my gosh, I, I have no desire because when I'm working, I'm not thinking about sex. And it's like, well, of course you're not, <laughs> you are know, right. doing obviously. your work, obviously, with some exceptions. Um, <laughs> uh, the exception being if you're that's a sex researcher, a sexual communication true. expert, <laughs> then you are thinking about sex. So if it, so the first step in kind of debunking that myth is, um, is sharing this message of what sexual desire actually is the much more common form of desire, which is, and essentially I asked the question, you know, when you're engaging in consensual sexual activity, you're doing something that feels good. You're in the moment, you're enjoying it. Your body starts to respond. Do you get to that point where eventually you want it? And if the person says, yeah, of course, you know, um, I might not want it at the beginning, but I do want it once we start and it feels great and it feels fulfilling and rewarding. Then I say, you have no problems with desire. You do not have a desire issue. You are experiencing a normal, common form of sexual desire that we call responsive desire. Um, and so that's really the important distinction. So when, when your followers say to you, I've lost my desire, that would be what I would want to find out is, okay, they might not have the kind of fairy tale notion of desire, which is it hits you like an arrow out of the blue, but do they have this, um, responsive desire that emerges? And if so, thumbs up. And what if they say they don't have that? Mm -hmm. Then we do start to look at, the rest of the sexual response cycle, like the triggers for arousal. We look at people's reasons for engaging in sex because sometimes people just don't have any reasons. They say, I don't see the point. I don't get anything out of it. My partner, you know, I don't think they get anything out of it. Our relationship doesn't benefit. It doesn't help me sleep, it doesn't help me feel better. I don't have an orgasm. So that is also a really critical part that moves people from neutral towards being open is having some reasons. And there's been a lot of research looking at reasons for sex and the fact that people can actually adopt and try on new reasons that they hadn't thought of before. Like, oh yeah, sex helps me relax or it helps me sleep better. Or I feel really empowered and, and strong after sex. And that's a great motivator to, to have sex on top of um more maybe traditional relationship related reasons it helps us feel closer we feel connected it's a way to express desire and passion and love um, so having reasons for sex is um is something we can really cultivate and think about
0: ah uh, that's a really good point uh, because you know i i derive a lot of pleasure from having sex with my partners i'm motivated right like i have motivations to uh, respond to his initiation, I have, I have motivations to initiate, uh, how would you recommend or advise people who say like, I have no motivation in this and they are in a relationship, but they are sexually dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. Uh, what, what should we say? Yeah.
1: So, um, definitely when, when overall motivation is absent, we do need to look at things like depression Um, which is kind of characterized by apathy and lack of, of, or low motivation. So, you know, we want to kind of take a step back first and say, is there a major depression that the person is experiencing or something like it is, is there significant anxiety or stress that's kind of dampening the person's overall motivation Are there medical factors, medications that one is using that, on a on a more physiological level, uh, are lowering the person's motivations? We want to kind of have that whole person picture first, yeah, Um, and then we want to look at. uh, I mean, what I often do with clients that that I work with is I actually present them the list of 237 reasons that uh, (laughs) Meston and Bus found in their research in 2007. So they surveyed 3,000 people of all ages, of all genders and ask them, why do you have sex? And they distilled those thousands and thousands of reasons to 237 reasons. And so I'll, I'll present that list to people and say, is there any reason on here that you, that, you know, resonates with you, that you could, that you could imagine trying on. Um, And usually they will always say yes, even if the person has really kind of chronic low motivation in general. If there is no reason whatsoever, then I would also want to kind of do a bit more exploration. Um, Does the person maybe identify a bit more with asexuality? Is this a person who not only lacks motivation, but they just they don't experience sexual attraction and they're not bothered by it? In fact, they resist the notion of treatment to restore desire, in which case I would you know, want to explore ACE and the whole ACE umbrella and the different expressions of aceness. Um, also really important to explore what's happening in the relationship. Are they feeling unsafe? Um, do they have their sexual encounters been non-consensual? Um, do they feel kind of pressured into having sex in a way that they don't want to, but because they have to preserve the relationship. So there's, there's lots of, Different potential ways to go if a person says, I have absolutely no motivation for sex. And then obviously there's there might be medical hormonal factors too. Yeah.
0: Yes. Oh, yeah. That too. Um, so going back to when you were distinguishing this, you know, desire arousals. And I really like this new way of explaining how like the arousals come first, the the triggers sh- there, the triggers should be there, then then hopefully you feel more aroused and then you respond to like, Ooh, like let's have sex, right. The desire to have sex. So what based on research, like what are some consistent powerful <laughs> factors contributing to arousal? Um. Yeah.
1: So if, again, if we define arousal as kind of the body's response, yeah. Yeah. Um, So stress is a major one because stress elicits the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight system in a way that can directly impede sexual arousal. There's been lots of research that shows that, that short-term stressors can actually facilitate arousal. So there's been fascinating research that um, looks at what happens when you walk over a really scary suspension bridge there's a suspension bridge in Vancouver where I live where this research was done and it's really anxiety provoking because you're you know 500 feet above a canyon and it it, what they and if you walk across with a partner um, their self-reports of sexual arousal were actually higher than when they walked across with someone else or a stranger what have you and so the underlying theory is that these short-term increases in um, the stress response system, sympathetic nervous system can actually increase sexual arousal, but chronic stress, which is the stress that most people have. Yeah. From work, pan- from pandemic, life. Pandemic, pandemic yeah, stress. Pandemic, children, um, bills. Everything actually has the opposite effect that it can impede uh, the kind of physical capacity for sexual response. So that's always one of the first things that I would want to look at is, You know, And sometimes stress doesn't have to be, like, as you say, it's the day-to-day things. It's the daily grind. It's the never-ending to-do list. It's, you know, someone always needs something from you. You never get to the bottom of your to-do list, as opposed to, say, a traumatic event. Yes, those can be um, uh, very significant as well. But there's actually some data that show the kind of day-to-day mundane to-do items, the hamster wheel, can actually take more of a toll on our brains in terms of stress response.
0: Wow. So would your first uh, advice be to find a way to relieve stress or find <laughs> like good stress management strategies? You know, I, I, I hesitate to say it's simple as that, but it's simple <laughs> as
1: that. Yes, yeah. that, is, that is definitely a place to start, is examine I mean, your level of stress in your life.
0: I mean, uh, a lot of research found that stress uh, I mean, literally stress kills, right? Uh, like with the life expectancy and people who are in like this mad, like chronic stress, it's it's bad for your physical health and mental health and yeah, obviously your sexual relationship. Yeah, yeah, uh, for so- sure.
1: Many books have been written about the effects of chronic stress on things like um, proneness to heart disease and diabetes and stroke um, eczema, um, even, even cancer, <laughs> all kinds of, things. all, all <laughs> kinds of things. And so, yeah, we really need to get a rein on, on stress.
0: Yes. Okay. So that stress is the, the number one kind of factor when looking into arousal, uh, what are the other major factors, uh, that contribute to arousal? Yeah.
1: Um, so medications is a big one. And, you know, often we think of the kind of typical medications um, affecting sexual response like antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, but there's a lot of other medications, heart, heart, any heart medication, blood pressure medication, um, even some of the chronic pain medications as well. Neuroleptics, etc., can imp- can get in the way of of sexual arousal, and um, you know the science is still not quite there in terms of understanding uh, why some people develop impairments in sexual arousal and orgasm with these medications, and other people don't. There's also a subgroup of people when they stop those medications, the arousal response doesn't return after that. So it's a really messy area of science. Um, but we do know that medications can be a, a, um, a big contributor. Um, a lot of my work um, has also focused on the experience of cancer survivors. And we know, mm-hmm. especially in uh, female bodied cancer survivors, that nerve sparing surgeries are still not Advanced um, as compared to some of the male nerve sparing surgeries for, say, prostate cancer, and so some of those really imp- important nerve pathways that are involved in sexual arousal, um, they get um, destroyed and damaged mm-hmm. during during uh, cancer treatments and surgeries um, in a way that leaves a significant number of survivors with uh, impairments in their sexual arousal. That was actually how I started doing research into mindfulness. Was I was Um, very preoccupied with the experience of cervical cancer survivors who talked about completely losing their arousal. So on the one hand, grateful for having their cancer treated and and for survival, but on the other hand, left with these really distressing side effects on their arousal that um, are, are permanent. You can't go back in and repair nerves that have been damaged um, so, uh, we found other ways to restore their arousal and that, yes. that's a big part of my own research into mindfulness as a, as a
0: tool to bolster arousal and
1: desire. Can you talk about that?
0: The mindfulness based interventions? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So that, uh, again, that work, the, the original work that I did in 2002, um, I was a fellow at the university of Washington and I was learning mindfulness. I was taking classes. I was, you know, started my own meditation practice. And at the same time was doing research with cancer survivors. And essentially I just asked them, I said, would you be willing to try this out with me? So I was learning it. I was teaching them and Then I was measuring their sexual response, mm-hmm. had them come into the lab, Had had them fill out questionnaires. And that very first study, it was only with a small group of about 25 cancer survivors, but they all reported an improvement in their ability to notice sexual arousal in their body. And I thought, well, that was a fluke. Like, How can paying attention to your body and breath translate into these improvements in arousal, especially since the the pathways involved in arousal have been permanently damaged through their surgeries? So I did the same study again. I moved to Vancouver, uh, took up a job as a professor at University of British Columbia. Did the same study, and found the same thing, exact same thing, that um, regular practice of mindfulness taught people it survived uh, cervical um, cervical and gynecologic cancers in this case taught them how to tune in and notice existing arousal in their body that could be amplified with their mindfulness practice. So the more they tuned in and paid attention in a non-judgmental way, the more it sent messages up to the brain to continue the arousal. And they had this kind of nice, uh, circular pathway yeah. attention, more arousal, more arousal, more attention in a way that translated into improvements, not only in arousal, but desire, sexual satisfaction. And they
0: had less yeah. pain with sex too. Wow. Okay, so you're definitely speaking my language here. I've uh, read your research, and I—I I mean, I preach mindfulness practices because I know it works. i, I mean, even you know, I'm—I mean, I've never had cancer. I feel like I've just had a dissatisfying sex life in general, uh, and I started practicing mindfulness regularly, and then I started practicing um, even more in tune with like sexual feelings during meditation, uh, it has really worked for me in, in tuning in and, and having great sex, either, I mean, alone or with a partner. Like even when I masturbate, uh, I feel more pleasure. Like I feel in my body more. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Oh, of
1: course it does. Yes, yeah. that's, what, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Is- like, I
0: feel really good
1: way more yeah. than before
0: hmm. Yeah. Ah.
1: Yeah. And it's because a lot of people are, are not present during sexual right. activity. So their minds are elsewhere. And so mindfulness is very much about tuning into the present moment, non judgmentally, bringing one's full attention. And when you do that, you're able to, to detect even the most subtle of sexual arousal sensations. But if our brain can detect even those tiny, minute little sensations and stay with it,
0: mm-hmm. they can
1: build. And when they build, we become, you know, more aroused, more satisfied, our brain pays even more attention. So um, we since the first study in 2002, now, fast forward, oh, my gosh, 20 years hard to believe, we've now replicated that finding in hundreds and hundreds of other women, men, we've recruited trans and non binary people. And it's a it's a, it's definitely a replicated finding, uh, over and over that at the end of the day, mindfulness, I think is next to communication. Mindfulness is the, is the next most important ingredient in satisfying sex.
0: Totally. And I feel like a satisfying life. <clears throat> yes, <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, mindfulness based intervention in these interventions, uh, what are, Uh, I'm sure you have them do quite a few things, but what are like the three mindfulness practices that you have people do or that you would recommend people do?
1: Yeah. So first and foremost, if, if a person has, has not practiced mindfulness or they don't have a regular mindfulness practice, that's where I recommend to start. Um, There's lots of really good apps. There's um, lots and lots of mindfulness guidebooks to guide people through um and so the the typical practices things like the body scan breath awareness practice mindful movement mindfulness of thought so these are all formal practices that we encourage people to do at least 10 to 15 minutes every day is it single meditation
0: day.
1: yeah so it's med it's med it's secularized meditation because okay. meditation has historic links to buddhism and right. kind of eastern philosophy and mindfulness is meditation brought into kind of westernized and secularized right. so it's not religious but right. essentially it is as i mentioned earlier present moment awareness practiced in a non-judgmental and compassionate way so that's really the kind of the first exercise is kind of having a a solid regular daily practice formal practice um and then from there we can start to um bring mindfulness into progressively more sexual situations. So one exercise we developed called sexual sensations awareness, we encourage people to first engage with uh, an erotic tool, something like a vibrator or Mm -hmm. fantasy or erotica. um, And they engage with that tool for a few minutes before they reach a high level of arousal. Then they put the tool aside And then we produced a mindfulness guide um, that uh, guides them through um, not just their body, but more specifically those kind of arousal sensations. So now they've kind of paired together an arousing tool with mindfulness. And what we find in our research is that they're much more likely to to notice and enjoy those sexual arousal sensations when they pair them together. So that's another exercise that we love and and people we work with love. And then there's, um, uh, um, partnered sexual mindfulness exercises Mm. that involve touching one another, paying attention, um, letting go of expectations and really just feeling the touch and feeling the sensations as they arise without expectation. Uh, so sensate focus is one exercise that sex therapists love to give it wasn't developed as a mindfulness exercise but i it is it's completely a mindfulness exercise that you can do with a partner and um really powerful to to just feel sensations as they are without
0: expectations i love that and i love doing it uh, i think it's a great exercise yeah. uh thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and wisdom today um before you go i'd like to play a game <laughs> are you ready dr lori Brado? Sure. <laughs> okay, so this game is called 10 Quickies with Dr. Tara. I know we have never fooled around before, but we're going to jump into 10 quickies. <laughs> <Okay>. I'm game. <laughs> I'm going to give you a word and you just give me your first response. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, 10 quickies with Dr. Tara. Number one, premature ejaculation. Quick. Number two, female sexual arousal. Mandatory. Number three, painful sex. Treatable. Love it. Number four, insecure attachment. Developmental. Number five, masturbation. Mandatory. Number six, meditation. Essential for satisfying sex. Hallelujah. Uh, Number seven, vibrators. Normalized. Number eight. G-spot. Question mark. (laughs) Love it. Number nine. Pleasure. Principles. And last but not least, number 10. Sexual desire. Complex. True, true, true that. Thank you so much, Dr. Lori Brado. Before you go, where can where can my audience find you? Um, thank you. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at
1: Dr. Lori Brado. You can follow all of our research on every social media platform at SHR. That stands for UBC Sexual Health Research. Um, and um, my book is Better Sex Through Mindfulness. And the workbook is coming out um, in September 2022.
0: Amazing. Okay, well, okay, this is the the very last thing, really, before you go. Uh, <laughs> I just I have to ask this, right? It's kind of like a, a Cosmo like article style, but uh, what would you say are the three tips to uh, creating more like this positive arousal? Mm-hmm. So um, two of them won't be any surprised
1: because we've talked about them over and over. One is mindfulness. Okay. So paying attention in the present moment, noticing what feels good. Mm-hmm. And and embracing it and letting it be there without judgment. Number two is sexual communication. Sometimes sexual communication is with a partner, but other times it's with ourself. So honesty, authenticity. Um, and putting that into words, and then I think the third thing is is um, curiosity and creativity. I guess those are two separate things, but I'll put them together. Um, so that ability to be flexible and open to new stimuli and new ways of being sexual is uh, is uh, I think also a, a third really critical ingredient for for long term healthy and happy sexual arousal.
0: Love it, love it. Thank you so much for being with us today, Doctor Brado. Thank you so much, Tara. I really enjoyed this conversation. And my dear loves, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I appreciate you so much. I hope you're having an orgasmic day. How amazing would it be if you don't have to hold your vibrator? Let me introduce you to Eva by Dame, hands-free vibrator. Eva is a hands-free, waterproof couples vibrator that gives you clitoral stimulation during penetrative sex. You're going to feel so good while Eva stays out of the way so you can focus on the moment. Use the link in this episode's description to the product page and use my discount code Dr. Tara for 10% off. Have an orgasmic time. Thanks for listening. This was, this was Love, Bites Love Bites by Dr. Tara. Follow Dr. Tara on social media at lovebites.co. Have an orgasmic day.